Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. With three decades in markets, John Golub's career was split evenly between the buy side and sell side. Reflecting on his early days in the industry, John notes the especially benign environment that characterized the 90s, a period of post-Cold War geopolitical stability with the trauma of 70s inflation sufficiently in the rear view, even as the tailwind of lower interest rates was still a positive force in markets. While analyzing time series of economic and financial data is a critical part of his team's process, John is careful not to draw broad conclusions because in market cycles, this time is actually different probably applies more often than not. He points to the less debt-heavy capital structure of key segments of the S&P 500 today versus decades ago as a ready example of the unique attributes of different time periods. Our conversation shifts to John's work as Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Credit Suisse and his assessment of present-day risks and opportunities. Here he makes the interesting point that the U.S. economy is less sensitive to higher rates than it has been historically. But for stocks, the short rate does matter, especially in the context of what he expects to be a more challenging earnings outlook. He sees the impact of Fed policy at least partially blunted by a labor market that is even tighter than the headline unemployment rate suggests. Next, we talk about inflation and the various ways in which it impacts both corporates and the consumer. For the latter, inflation matters, but the healthy jobs market matters more, especially when set against the backstop of savings. For companies, margin compression, dwindling profit growth, and a middling economy lead to what John characterizes as stagflation light. This less-than-rosy outlook is in the context of valuations that appear reasonably fair, especially when compared to long-term corporate bond yields. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Alpha Exchange, my conversation with John Golub. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Jonathan Golub. He is the Chief U.S. Equity Strategist and Head of Quantitative Research at Credit Suisse. Jonathan, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Dean. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation. We'll do some review of history and establish how you arrived at your framework for interpreting the markets from a top-down perspective, and then talk a lot about what you see right now during this time of considerable change in things like inflation and things like wages, and of course, in the stance of monetary policy. But so let's get the conversation underway and learn a little bit more about you and your history in financial markets. Take us back to the beginning. How did you get your start into this wonderful world of high finance? My career, you probably want to split into two time periods. I've been at this over 30 years. The first half was on the buy side, working in asset management. My last gig on that side of the business was for JP Morgan, where I was their market strategist and helped build out their mutual fund effort and was part of their equity team. And on the buy side, what you're in the business of doing is looking at all kinds of input listening to the smartest strategists and economists on Wall Street and, and reading and looking at numbers and sharing with your colleagues, and then putting it all together and coming up with an investment decision. And then about 15 years ago, I moved over to the sell side. And in this role, it's very different because you're really starting with a blank piece of paper and a bunch of data and a Bloomberg screen or what have you. And you are the 
idea. You're supposed to be the guy who comes up with that unique insight that's differentiated. And you almost go out of your way not to read your competitors or peers in the industry, if you will, because the key is to add something new and fresh and valuable to the conversation. And so most people actually start on the sell side and go to the buy side. And I did it in the reverse order. Well, there's always a narrative in markets. And sometimes I think that narrative gets pretty overconsumed and probably convinces us of things and prevents us from engaging in the original thinking that I believe you're referring to. But as you mentioned, you've been at this in the industry for over three decades. And so that gives you a fair amount of history just in terms of market cycles and ability to incorporate the evolution of things and to take a view on how things have changed along the way. So what I would love to do is start in the earlier parts of your career. So share with us some things that, as you look back on, were formative for you, whether they're market cycles, risk events. Tell us about some of the things that have mattered to you in developing your current way of thinking about markets. If you started in the business in the late 1980s or earlier mid-1990s, and we can put aside what happened in 94, you were in a period where you were way beyond the inflationary period of the 1970s. You never experienced anything like that. Maybe as a kid, you remember going to a gas line with your dad filling up his car or something, but you never really understood inflation as an adult and definitely not as somebody who followed companies or the economy or markets. And we were also in this world that was incredibly peaceful and benign. We were well beyond the social unrest associated with the Vietnam era. We watched the Berlin Wall come down. There was this concept of the end of history. It was probably one of the most peaceful periods in human history. And it was great for markets. If you look at the most important headwind is that while Volcker beat up on inflation in the late 70s and early 80s, interest rates didn't quickly adjust downward. They took 30 years to fully get down to their recent lows. So you had this huge tailwind where the cost of capital kept falling, which meant that no matter what happened to corporate profits, your discount rate was falling and the value of equities, the value of bonds, the value of real estate were steadily going up. And it was just this wonderful period. And in many ways, we kind of were lulled into believing that that was normal. Even when people thought, you know, valuations were crazy in the late 90s, and they were surely for some internet stocks, a lot of what was happening was the collapse of the interest rate that had played out over time that was lifting all boats. And if you then look at the world in the last 20-ish years, you had the bursting of the internet bubble, and then shortly thereafter, you had September 11th, which caused a recession. We had the financial crisis, and then we have this ugly pandemic. And the result is, is that in many ways, as much as this seems like just one disturbance after another for the last 20 years, this is probably closer to what history has looked like for people who have tried to invest capital, which is things seem reasonable and quiet for relatively short periods, three, five, seven years, and then something unexpected happens. And the historical precedent 
is really hard in each of these environments to apply. And so we try to say, okay, in the financial crisis, what did the Great Depression look like? What happened in that period? But there are so many dissimilarities. And for that matter, the data, it wasn't really available the same way that it is today. So it's very hard to make really thoughtful comparisons and to compare this period to the period of the Spanish flu, very hard to do. And the government's response wasn't the same to it. So it's been a learning experience. In many ways, you almost need to go out of your way to say, I'm not going to simply say, find another period in time that looks the most like this, and let's just assume we're going to mimic it, but rather to say you have a whole bunch of things that are happening that in combination are unique. Right now, for example, we have high inflation, but it doesn't look like the 1970s, and it doesn't look like some of the high inflation we've had in places like South America. We have high inflation and low unemployment. Well, that definitely doesn't look like the 1970s. How do we think through this? as a logic problem, as opposed to simply a study of history and say, okay, great, let's pick a point in time and just assume we're going to do what it it did then, because it overly simplifies the process. That's kind of how I think about my framework and how the winds have shifted and, and impacted the way I think of things. There's some great points in there. And I think I would echo what you say, which is, look, history matters. We certainly want to incorporate some data into how we think about interpreting what we see in the present day. But boy, you go back 150 years and tell me that interest rates did this and equities did that. The relevance seems to fade a little bit. Each of these cycles, as you say, is so unique. The regulatory response coming out of something like the GFC becomes a thing. It imposes itself just in terms of the fabric of risk-taking. So there really is a lot of uniqueness in terms of evaluating things. As we were talking about the 90s, it just was hitting up here. And so it looks like the 10-year return from the decade from 1990 to 2000 is a 18% annual return on the S&P. So lots of compounding there over a 10-year period. And as you noted, it ended with this just gigantic internet bubble, this valuation bubble. And I'd love to just Here are some of your thoughts on that. It goes back quite a ways, but there was this incredible differentiation, I think, as you reference as well, between the internet stocks and maybe it's the GEs of the world. Value stocks were trashed at the time. What was that like? At the very end of this, I was over at a company called Scudder Kemper, and and their approach was more of a value-oriented approach to things. And I think investors often see periods where if you're more of a balance sheet investor and you're looking at cash flows and doing all this rigorous work and you look at long-term demographic trends, you do all the things that investors should be doing, the stuff that Warren Buffett would tell you you should be doing. And then you see these speculative companies that you don't understand that seem to be levitating and trading at multiples of eyeballs or clicks or what have you, and simply step aside and say, well, this is just lunacy, and to not participate. And it's very easy in those periods 
to just assume that they're going to end quickly. And I think this is the same thing in the housing bubble period. It was relatively easy to see that things were going to go bad in 2005 and six and seven. And for those who predicted it, they probably felt vindicated at the end. But for many, it just took too long to unwind. And if you were early at predicting it, you got crushed. And so there's a bunch of storied investors in, let's say, the period where real estate burst, where they realized that this housing thing was going to go bad and subprime loans were going to go bad. And they shorted the market and they made all this money and there's movies made about them. Here's the issue. There were guys who were equally smart who did the same thing one year earlier and went bankrupt because they were too early on the trade. These things tend to be really powerful. And we need to look at some of these and also try to differentiate which of these business ideas. The internet was clearly a real thing, but it doesn't mean every early internet company is going to be a successful company. I think that investors in many ways today are challenged with crypto or with other new technologies that folks are saying, come on, this thing isn't real, or, or maybe it is, or maybe it's not. And we may find that some of the naysayers, maybe they'll be proven to be right, but that doesn't mean that sitting on the sideline ended up not being costly over a period of time. And discerning those is really difficult. And you see this pattern coming up over and over again. And then there's some of these that look like they're clear winners, like the things we're seeing with artificial intelligence and some of the new products that are coming out along that line. And then on some of these names, the valuations get bid up. And in many cases, the businesses and technologies are winners, but maybe the investors aren't necessarily winners if they're overpaying for them. So it's interesting. You saw that in a big way in the late 90s, but we have seen it several times since as well. Yeah, there's definitely, I think, a corollary between the value investor or the plight of the value investor circa 98 or 99 and the skeptic on housing circa 2004 and 5. To be sufficiently early is probably closer to being wrong than right, even though you were eventually proven right. So timing is so difficult. I remember having a conversation with a client around 2005 about doing some credit default swap hedging in housing and spent some premium, not a lot of it because it was the risk premium levels were so low, but sufficiently early to just give up on it after <laughs> a period of time. So a little bit too early. You said something earlier that I just wanted to come back to. You referenced change. And I think that's one of the topics of conversation I really ask guests to reflect back on because you have, again, the benefit of having done this for a long period of time and observing the change. And you referenced changes even in the data sets that are available. In terms of your role as a top-down equity strategist advising clients on how to construct portfolios and how to try to get ahead of the market, can you reflect on just change, let's say over the last 10 years or so, post the global financial crisis and then into the pandemic? Are there areas of the set of disciplines that you're engaged in, you and your team are engaged in and trying to find value for clients that have evolved over time. You mentioned the data as being different and new, but I'd just love to get you to reflect on the change in your role in, in terms of what you're trying to accomplish 
for your clients over the past, let's say, decade or so? Let me kind of expand the scope of your question a little bit. When you're looking at economic data, the things like GDP and the unemployment rate and inflation ratings pretty much started after World War II in terms of being organized and generally available. So when people say GDP grew for the last 150 years at such and such, once you get before the post-war period, you're looking at some academic maybe looked at like a shipping manifest or some farming almanac and extrapolated and made up a GDP number. The economic data right now, that means it goes back about 80 years. But if you look at how many business cycles are there, it's not forever. If you look at corporate data, one of the things that we look at a lot is when we look at PE multiples, we look at forward PE multiples, which means I need a forward earnings number. Well, we only have about 20 to 25 years of forward earnings information. So if you say, well, what have equity valuations been over time? You can't use forward PEs. You have to use trailing PEs going back starting in the mid 90s. So now you're comparing apples and oranges and you can make some adjustments. The benchmarks, the S&P doesn't go back forever or growth versus value. And then people make these and then they use older versions of these, which look quite different. All of those things make comparisons much more challenging. It doesn't mean you don't have to do the best with what you have, but sometimes you're forced to use relatively short data sets, which is why I like to understand history, but I also want to make sure that I'm looking at relationships first and foremost. The other thing when you're looking at the stock market, and if you look at what we really do more than anything else in our strategy team here at Credit Suisse, is we are market behavior specialists. When the yield curve is steep, what happens? How many recessions are caused by oil price spikes? If you have oil-driven recessions, do they look different than other kinds of recessions? And we look at things like this, but one of the things that we see when we try to analyze markets is the very makeup of what's in the S&P or any of the benchmarks is really different because the companies are different. So first of all, when my dad was a young man, autos were an innovative new technology. That's why people wanted to go out and eat in their car and do all these other things at fast food restaurants. And there was a whole different type of technology that was leading. If you went back to the late 1800s, the new technology was a train. But today, if you look at digital technology, in 1995, digital technology was less than 5% of the S&P and digital technology related companies right now are about a third. And the biggest reason is they're really high margin businesses that need very little capital. So if you look at the financial statements of the companies, like how much leverage the S&P companies deploy, well, they deploy way less leverage than they did before. Now, if companies deploy a lot less leverage because digital economy companies don't need as much capital, then the stock market is worth more if it uses less leverage. If you went to buy a business and you're buying the business, but along with that business, you have a ton of outstanding loans that you take on, you're not going to pay as much for that business. It's the same thing for the stock market. But if you're buying an S&P index fund and a third of the business has no debt at all, gosh, I'll pay more for the market. So when you're looking at what's a fair multiple or how do you think about the market, some of it is quantitative, like how do you calculate things? But some of it is you have to qualitatively say, well, okay, they're different. What does that mean? How do, what do I do with that? The environment is always shifting and there's some science that and there's some art. As you talk about the changing nature 
or the composition of the S&P 500 as we talked about the internet bubble. Boy, I think the tech component got up to 27-ish percent of the S&P. And then, of course, you had the housing and finance bubble and the finance component got 25 to 27 percent of the S&P. Seems like a spot you don't want to get to because ultimately you'll crash down. Energy was maybe 11 percent, went down to one or two percent. So these things really do change. As you look at the current composition, I'd love for you to just talk about the big picture of how you guys think about finding value, number one. And then number two, let's just talk about what everyone else is talking about, which is the Fed rates, inflation, and how that impacts your assessment of the value among the sectors. So describe to us, as you look at the composition of the S&P, what's in there now and what's unique about it right now? There are times, Dean, and you know this from the activities of your organization, where there are really large extremes in one area or another. It could be the relationship between gold and silver, and you guys can find ways of creating investable opportunities looking at those things. And there are other times where one sector looks unreasonably valued, cheap or expensive compared to its own history or other groups. Two years ago, or I would say, yeah, a year and a half ago, the market had this very, I don't know, winner-take-all kind of structure, or I don't know if that's the right way of putting it, but that things were either outlandishly expensive or outlandishly cheap compared to the history. Banks were trading at extraordinary discounts to the market, and high sales growth companies were trading at extraordinary premiums. And when that happened, we were just stomping on the table saying to anyone who would listen, you need to basically short or underweight those high-valued assets. And I don't know whether it's a week or a month or a year. I don't know whether the event is going to be the Fed moving or some kind of an economic issue, but there will be a catalyst and it's going to bring these disparities back towards the middle that really was the story last year. In 2022, it, the story wasn't that the market went down. The story was is that the expensive stuff collapsed and the fairly valued stuff did much better. And that's why last year was a big value year in terms of value beating growth because it was the undervalued asset that didn't need to correct. It was the overvalued asset that did the correcting. Now, if we look at where the market is today, we're seeing very, very few big, fat softball pitches where part of the market looks out of whack compared to the other. If I look at from where I'm sitting, the two areas where perhaps the disparity is larger, it's that cash as an alternative to stocks looks extraordinarily interesting. If you can get over 5% on one-year duration, either government bonds or corporate paper versus the risk of equities with earnings that are expected to decline over the next year or two. On a risk-adjusted basis, it looks like that's much more interesting than it's been in a very, very long time. And then if you look at right now, the U.S. compared to the rest of the world, the U.S. for the last 25 years has been a faster growing asset. You paid more for it, but it delivered much better growth and much better cash flows and much better margins and more innovation. And right now, tech companies are having a harder time and non-U.S. growth looks better than U.S. growth and it's trading at a big discount. And so 
U.S. equities versus both cash and non-U.S. equities is probably the most glaring thing. Perhaps small cap being undervalued is the other thing which jumps out now. And then you have very different kind of discussions, which I know you kind of alluded to, which is with the Fed raising rates and things going on in the current economic system, that creates a whole different set of more tactical decisions to be made, but they're a different kind of decision. There are a number of folks who have argued that the duration profile of the stock market, when we typically think about duration, it's a fixed income concept that links bond price reaction to a change in rates. But there is a concept of duration in the stock market as well. And this notion that the stock market, and especially an index like the triple Q, had become longer and longer duration through this growth factor. And if folks are suggesting why the expensive part of the market did so poorly in 2022, an obvious source of that unwind comes from just the jolt higher in interest rate. And as you said, Maybe it's the lower duration, the more value-oriented component of the market did better, held up in 2022. Is that in your line of thinking that the stock market sell-off last year was very much a function of higher rates because of the quote-unquote duration profile of certain segments of the market? First of all, I love thinking about equities in terms of duration. I'm not sure that we're applying it the best way. So if you said to me, what is the most important issue? First of all, the shift in positioning of the Fed from ultra easy policy to tight and then meaningfully tight policy was the catalyst for the market to sell off. The question is, was it the move in interest rates or was it the signal that this was going to ultimately drive us into a recession? And in a recession, these expensive assets aren't worth as much. And I think it was probably the latter, meaning that the Fed was threatening to take the punch bowl away. If you had a recession or if the odds of recession were going to go up on you, then these tech companies were going to have an issue. If you look at tech specifically last year, you took the triple Qs. It's not that their valuations were hurt, which was the issue. Their earnings were a disaster. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But during the pandemic, when you and I and everybody else is sitting at home, what do we do? We got a new laptop. We signed up for every streaming service in the world because we're sitting and binge watching and we're on Zoom. And there was this huge pull forward of tech activity. And then when the world opens up, I don't need a new laptop and I'm not going to sign up for another streaming service. Maybe I'll even cancel my streaming service. And my marginal expenditure right now is getting on a plane and going someplace, going to a concert or something. And so you have a shift away from goods to services. And these tech companies, their earnings are really under a lot of pressure. And they're not all the same, but their business models in general were feeling pressure at the same time. So if you were an online retailer, when we're staying at home, we're buying all of our goods online and sales surge. But when things open up, We're not buying physical goods, whether it's in a store or online, and we're moving towards services. So that's not a great thing for online retailers. And if you are a social media company or a company that does search, are they technology companies or are they ad sellers? And when we're seeing a weak period of profit margin growth right now or profit pressures, companies, the first thing they do is they cut advertising. 
And so their business models came under pressure. Are those technology issues? They're part of this whole ecosystem. So the whole thing is under a lot of pressure. So independent of any big fat macro thing, the earnings story there is a mess. And it was a mess in the fourth quarter where S&P profits were down 2% all in, which is not great. If you threw out tech-related companies, profits were 5.5%. So there is something fundamental beyond just this issue of interest rates. But I do like the framework. I think it's very intelligent, and I think it's really helpful. Well, traditionally, the portfolio strategist work might look at earnings and valuations across different sectors. And people like you increasingly factorize the exposures and explain things based on factors. And one of them that you talk about is inflation. So when I think about inflation with regard to companies, there's a lot of moving parts. There's selling your goods or services, perhaps at a higher level. There's the demand shock, maybe, that comes from the consumer suffering from inflation. There's wages. So there's all these different aspects of it. I'd love for you to talk to us about your work on inflation as a factor that helps explain returns, and then maybe give us some insight as to which set of companies, the characteristics of those companies that are either on the right side or the wrong side of rising inflation. It's a great and really thoughtful question. So when inflation started to peak up, everyone and their mother who looks at stocks the way you're talking about, like really gets in the weeds on earnings and stuff, said this is going to be terrible for corporate profits because expenses for companies are going to go up. But what happens almost always when you have a pickup in inflation like we experience is that the price of the things we buy in a store or the services that we consume go up much more quickly than the change in wages. And what we saw last year was that salaries went up something like three and a half percent and inflation went up by eight percent and the American consumer felt really beaten up. So putting differently, real wages went down. So you may have gotten a raise from your employer, but when you went to the store, you realized that the price of milk and eggs and gasoline went up higher than the wage increase and you felt really bad. What we said and it played out exactly the case, is companies gained pricing power because inflation was running higher than wages. They could sell for more, but the expense they were paying on wages was sticky at a lower level and profit margins did incredibly well. And then on top of that, revenues are measured in nominal dollars, which basically means is GDP plus inflation. So revenues surge, margins go up because you're paying less in wages, but your selling prices go up and profits go ballistic. And that was our read. And we were way higher than everybody's estimates on earnings. And we nailed that. Now we're seeing the opposite side. And some people say, oh, you're just saying that because you have a bullish bias. But no, it was just, the math was really simple. Now it's the opposite, which is inflation is coming down, but wages are much stickier. So now companies have a problem, which is this year, they'll probably pay 5% wage increases. But it's likely that over the full course of 2023 and 2024, that let's say inflation will run 3.5% or 4% or some lower number. And companies, now they're getting squeezed. They're paying more to the workers 
and they're not getting as much. So it's a relatively difficult environment for corporate profits. And you find the same kind of things or a little bit different on commodity inputs. Imagine that you're going to Home Depot or Lowe's or your local hardware store and you're buying some wood to do some kind of a home project. Well, the value of that, the cost of that lumber in the store gets marked to market every day, every week, but regularly. So if let's say that store makes a 20% profit margin or whatever the profit margin is on that two by four, when the cost of the two by four goes up, the cost of running that hardware store is the same. They're paying the same people, they're paying the same rent, but they're making more dollars of profit on that two by four. The profit margins go up a ton. And that's just one example. But if you think about our entire society or not society, our businesses, a home builder charges a premium over the building costs. And so the profit margins of home builders goes up and you see this all over the place. So we find that rising industrial commodities, copper and building materials and oil, when they go up more, that's a very good thing. Now, if you look at, well, where is it going from here? You can say, well, what does Golub think or what does Credit Suisse think? But there's a futures market. And you could say, well, what do we all collectively think rather than an individual person forecasting? And the futures market is saying that oil is going to fall roughly $10 a barrel for the next three years or over the next three years, which means that if you have the falling commodity prices, and we've seen this with building materials as well, that is additional pressure on margins, even beyond wages. So the margin story is going to be a rough one. Here's kind of the weird environment we're going to find. I think the consumer is going to feel very empowered. There's lots of jobs for them. Their wages are going to be going up faster than the cost of things they want to buy. That seems like it's great for the economy, but yet companies, their profit margins are going to be under pressure. And that means that in many ways, the American worker will do better in the next year or two than a small business owner, or for that matter, a big business. So much of the market's analysis of the Fed tends to assume this reaction function from the Fed that's very linked to some version of the Phillips curve, which is wages are a big part of how inflation is going to materialize. And of course, it's very inexact. We don't really know. But it'd be great to get an understanding of how you look at wages, what you see in terms of the companies, what they're experiencing on the wage front. We obviously know that there continues to be a tight labor market. Is that ongoing? Is that something that is going to continue to create price pressure on the labor front? And then ultimately, do you think it leaves the Fed in no position but to keep policy tight or tighten more than the market might currently have priced in? Ultimately, we're not going to be able to shed the inflationary pressures that we're experiencing as long as the labor market remains tight. And it's really unlikely that we're going to be able to reverse the tightness in the labor market without having a bona fide recession. And so the question is one of timing, but there are 10 and a half million job openings, according to the Labor Department right now. Now, some of those, some people may argue, are double counted because people list a job twice, but it doesn't really make a difference. It's really clear that the demand for labor is super high. If you look at companies, 
in surveys, whether it's small businesses or big businesses, and they're asked a question, are you having difficulty finding labor? The answer to those surveys is consistent with an unemployment rate, not of 3.4, but of something more like 2.7. There's no question that companies are not able to find the labor that they need. And what's happening right now is on average, if you look, let's say over the last six months, we're adding about 100,000 new workers a month into the labor market, but we're adding 300 plus thousand new jobs. And so it's not like the labor market is quietly getting less tight. In many ways, it looks like it's getting even tighter. The number of people who are being terminated, every week we get a tally of the number of people who filed for unemployment insurance. It's a really good real-time measure of firings or terminations. Those numbers are about 20 to 25% below where they were mid-year last year. Companies in many cases, they may have employees that they don't really, they're not fond of. They just know if they get rid of Bill, they're not going to find another guy behind them. So companies are really slow to terminate workers. And it's very difficult to see in this environment how inflation is going to magically go away. Now, will there be some automation? If you go to a fast food restaurant, you see that you order now on a big screen and the like. But if you look economy-wide, there's tons of shortages. What makes this environment interesting compared to other periods is that the demand for middle to low end jobs is much greater. The raises that people who are in the middle to lower end of the income spectrum are getting, their raises are much higher. And as I said before, the owners of companies, whether they be public companies or private companies, they're getting squeezed on margins and there's a big rebalancing of the economy away from corporate profits towards the worker and actually the lower end worker. But I don't see any way out of this without a recession. And I also, the economy is quite interest rate insensitive. You have a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. What do you care where interest rates go? It's not going to affect you. You're a corporation. You saw how low interest rates were. So you raise money with a five or seven year maturity. Hey, what do you care if interest rates move? So the US economy compared to almost all of the other major economies is much more indifferent to what their central bank is doing. And that puts the Fed in a real pickle because if they really want to slow inflation, they have to do probably a lot more. And they know that if they do that, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. So you make a really interesting point there around the beta of the economy to interest rates. And I'd love for you to just expand on that a little bit more. And as you referenced, no way out, but for a recession, I think our listeners are going to be most interested in what the market pricing implications might be in that type of scenario. The first issue is, if we think about who is actually going to pay these rates, if you're a small business and you need to borrow money to make payroll or to buy your inventory, you're not going to the bond market and issuing a seven-year bond. You're going to your local bank. And when interest rates go up, you do get beaten up. If you are a young couple who's looking to buy your first home and mortgage rates are up, you're stuck as a renter or you're going to be able to afford a lot less house. Those are the folks that really get hurt. But the majority of homeowners, if you're an older American, you probably paid off your home or a big chunk of your home. And if you have a mortgage at three and three quarters or four and a quarter, whatever you refinance that, you don't really care. And if you're a big corporation, you've termed out your debt. So overall, there are losers on this. 
it's rougher for small businesses, but that means, and the Fed has to know this, do they really want the small business owner to get really crushed by higher interest rates, but big business doesn't get hurt and the average American family doesn't get hurt because they have a mortgage, but that young couple never gets their own home? So the policy kind of breaks down a little bit. And I've had this conversation with a number of economists where it's really clear the right answer is to use a different tool, but it's not the Fed's tool. For example, if you raise taxes, well, that could happen on everybody. So the average homeowner would get hurt. The average business would get hurt. So it would be different. If you were living in Canada and most people there have a variable rate mortgage, then everybody equally gets penalized and it slows the economy. It's a challenge for the Fed. We were just looking at what expectations are for the U.S. economy and looking at the different buckets. And you said, you know, housing is going to get hurt. And so here's what we see. The consumer is fine. They have decent amount of cash in the bank. Job situation is good. As I mentioned, their wage situation is going to be getting better. The consumer is fine. Businesses, they're spending money on CapEx. Some of that is that a year or two ago, they couldn't get the equipment they needed because of supply chain issues. They're out purchasing and that's okay. And housing activities, and now I'm not talking about the value of a home, but the building of homes, that's really come down tremendously. And it's going to probably continue to weaken. And so that's expected to contract about two and a half or three percent this year. And that's a really big headwind. But if the other parts of the economy are really healthy, we're we're probably left with Dean is a growing economy, but an anemically growing economy. Like the GDP is expected to be about three quarters of a percent growth this year, as opposed to two percent, which is normal and average. And it's not a recession. It's far from a recession, but it's also not a healthy economy. And it's far from a healthy economy. And inflation comes down from the 9% levels that we saw early in 2022 when we had supply chain issues. But it doesn't come down back towards the Fed's 2%. It sits at 3 or 4%. And so what we have is what I'll call stagflation light. It's not the stagflation of the 1970s where you had double digits inflation and high unemployment. You have low unemployment, weak economic growth, and annoying inflation. Three or 4% inflation you could live with, it's a drag. And I think that what we're going to see is this stagflation light environment is going to last not for a month or two or three, but I think it can last for two or three years. And so the recession is not this year and maybe not in 2024, maybe further out than this. But yet we kind of have this yucky economic backdrop of weak growth and annoying inflation and a tight labor market that will sound really bad for you and me. And it's not good for corporate profits. But the American consumer, like I said before, is kind of a shoulder shrug on it. It's like, it's not horrible. That young couple is, is feeling a lot of pain. They want that house and they're not going to be able to get it. You didn't have to be a hero to make the call that inflation was going to go from nine to something less than nine on a year-over-year basis. Maybe it's nine to five, nine to four. But the pathway, I think, as you're alluding to, from four to two, boy, that could be a long haul. And if these policies are not really set up to deliver the kind of demand destruction that maybe they're supposed to, and you're talking about this beta or this lack of beta of the economy to rates, it seems to me that Fed policy could sit there in some sort of territory where the short rate is 
high for a considerable period of time. It doesn't seem like they have a lot of scope to start cutting rates if inflation is a percent or more above target. There's not a lot of precedent to that. What does that mean for portfolio positioning in your world in terms of the makeup, whether it's sector exposures or style factors? As you guys look at the world, as it not to predict the future, but to try to help people position properly in an environment where rates might stay up for a considerable period of time. What does that look like? What do you favor and where are the underweights? If I start with what does it mean for a fixed income investor? When you were studying economics way back when, you were taught that under normal circumstances, the yield curve is positively sloped. As a matter of fact, it should almost always be positively sloped except for a short period of time right before a recession, and it was your perfect recession signal. Now, if you use the futures market to say, what is the yield curve going to look like a year from now and two years from now, the futures market says that we're going to have an inverted yield curve until the middle of 2025. And so we're looking at an environment where the yield curve is going to be inverted for something like three years. So the bears are going to look at the signal and they're going to be screaming, we're going in a recession, the world's coming to an end, sell your stocks. And it's not going to happen. And the reason is exactly you said. It doesn't appear that the Fed wants to get to such a high number that would really crash this economy and clear this. So they're going to have a number that's probably going to be, let's just say, 5.5% on Fed funds. And they're going to have to leave it there. And yet, if the economic growth is weak against this backdrop because housing is damaged, then you end up with a 10-year bond yield, which is well below that, something like it is today, like 4%. And this environment, first of all, it's a very interesting environment for banks because typically, since banks borrow money cheap and lend it expensive, they want a steep yield curve. So it has really interesting implications for lending institutions. But if you look at, from a sector point of view, if you think you're going to go into a recession, if you look at these inverted yield curve. So all oh, recession's coming. You want to be buying defensive stocks. You want to be buying utilities. You want to be buying consumer staples names. But if that recession never comes, that ends up being a really bad investment. You don't want to be defensively positioned right now. Traditionally, this would be a fantastic environment to buy tech companies. They're innovation driven. They're not driven by the economy. They're not interest rate sensitive. The problem right now is they're expected to deliver, at least for the next two or three quarters, pretty weak earnings growth because some of the problems we talked about before. And so if tech is able to get through their near-term earnings woes, it would be the place you want to be. But right now, it just doesn't seem like it's the right place to go. The consumer if they're in great shape, you want to be in consumer discretionary stocks. So they look attractive. This argument that oil prices are going to fall, which is what's being discounted in the futures market for oil, I'd be on the other side of that trade. I think that that's pretty unlikely. And that if demand is as strong, if demand holds up and we don't get a recession and China reopens, oil prices surprise to the upside. So energy looks attractive. The CapEx cycle right now outside of things related to housing, looks pretty okay. So industrial stocks do okay. So in a weird way, in this anemic environment, the consumer and industrial parts of the economy, the more cyclical stuff, looks more attractive 
to me, and they're trading at reasonable valuations. But if you put this in context versus history, which is what would you normally do when the yield curve is inverted and the Fed is tightening, you'd never put this trade on. But I think it's what's going to work. Yeah. And you mentioned valuation. I'd love to get your take on that, perhaps across sectors, across style factors as well. You mentioned the idea of going to defenses. Well, sometimes the market prices that in such a way that makes defensives expensive. And so it undoes some of the value. Put in context, just on an overall basis, how you think about valuation in a 5% short rate environment versus the good old days when the Fed funds rate was stuck at zero. How different is that now versus then, just in terms of the framework and how a real short rate of 5% imposes itself on that framework? All the work that we do on thinking about like what a fair value multiple or what fair valuations are for the stock market, it all points to the fact that long-term rates matter and short-term rates, they're noise, they're part of the ecosystem, but it's a long-term rate that matters. And so we shouldn't be thinking about a five-term, 5% rate on Fed funds or five and a half or wherever it's going to go. We should be thinking more about a four or three and a half percent 10 year. So that's number one. Number two is we also don't care about the government rate because the discount rate for corporate cash flows or the stuff you use to value or discount stocks is the corporate borrowing rate. And so what they pay is a long dated treasury plus a credit spread or you know an equity risk premium. And credit spreads are somewhat modest right now. And the big issue is, is that companies aren't defaulting. So I would argue that credit spreads, I actually think that they're going to come down a little bit because it doesn't look like recession risk is that high. So when you look at the PE multiple of the stock market compared to a corporate bond yield, it looks pretty close to fair value. And if we look at other periods where corporate borrowing rates were where we are today, the multiples have been in this general zip code. I guess the short answer is, from a stock market perspective, from a PE perspective, I don't see what the Fed's doing right now as particularly threatening. Well, you pointed to that period, and maybe it's middle of 2021, rates got so low, and the pandemic was still, in a lot of ways, in full sway, just in terms of people's behavior, as you say, people doing things from home. And you pointed to that valuation spread, where expensive stocks versus cheap stocks was just this gigantic spread. Is there anything like that now with regard to prices that you look at that are just incongruous, where there's a relationship that's become untethered, where things are glaringly out of line in your world of valuations? Is it more of a middle of the road type of environment or does anything really stand out to you? If you look at this question across sectors and factors and regions and the like, it looks like there's far more in the middle of the distribution than there is in the tails versus a couple of years ago where everything was in the tails. And I think I may have mentioned this before, but especially if we avoid a recession, small caps look quite attractive. Non-US looks attractive versus the US. If there is a single sector that looks like it's just entirely mispriced, it would be the energy sector. And that makes sense because there's this push, whether it's economic or whether it's driven by social issues or other things, for people to divest from 
energy companies. But the result then ends up being that energy companies are delivering incredible excess profits and yet they're trading really cheap and the return on a dollar invested there is super high. And if ultimately they're trading at too big a discount in the public markets, then some investor of some kind is going to come in and just privatize them and realize that upside. And the other thing which makes these energy companies so interesting is not only Well, it's not really the price of oil per se. It's the fact that they're making very little capital investment back into the ground. So the cash flows they generate are extraordinary for the valuations they have. So if you looked at them not on a PE basis, but on a price to cash flow basis, they just seem out of whack with anything that would be reasonable. Financials look cheap, but nowhere near as cheap as they have in the past. And so if you look at banks, banks like the, the regional bank that's in the business of lending money probably looks a little bit better than the big capital markets banks because M&A activity and IPO activity has slowed. And who knows whether that changes over the course of the year. But those are some of the stuff that looks outside of normal bands. But if you look at growth versus value, very much normal. I want to close out the conversation and ask you just about the investment that your team is making in some forward-looking ideas, things that you're in the lab on, uh, maybe experimenting with from a data standpoint or learning about new techniques and so forth. But before that, I'd love for you just to reflect and share with us some of your experience on the client side. And again, going back to this word change, the interactions with the clients, the demands from the clients, what they're looking for from you and your team I'd love to learn a little bit more about how that's maybe changed in the post-pandemic era. What's new and different in terms of the dialogue you're having with clients and the problems you're helping them solve? I talk to a host of clients with very, very different profiles. I talk to asset allocators who are making decisions between stocks and bonds and all kinds of alternative assets. We talk to people who are long-short equity hedge funds and macro hedge funds. But the long-short hedge fund community had a really rough year last year. And one of the things that you learn when you've been at this a while is that it's very hard when you've had a bad year to be optimistic. It paints your view of the future. And so the pessimism on the part of the long, short hedge fund community is just horrible. And so some of it may be that they're right, that the things are really ugly. And certain cases they are. But some of that I think is overly negative because embedded in that is some pain on the performance side of things. So hedge fund leverage is way down. And if you said to me, John, you wake up at the end of this year and stocks were up 18% and everybody got it wrong, how great things were, what would have gotten us there? And the answer is that the hedge fund community would have relevered and that relevering activity ultimately means that just, just buying of beta. A lot of people talk about cash on the sidelines, and the Bank of America has these mutual fund surveys and how much mutual fund companies are holding in cash. That's not going to be the catalyst. The re-leveraging of the hedge fund community would be the most positive catalyst. And what would drive it is the economy looking healthier and the risks of recession continuing to fall. GDP now, the Atlanta Fed, their expectation is that the first quarter GDP is going to be between two and a half and three percent. 
And if we had that, that would be the second quarter in a row of incredibly robust quarterly GDP numbers. And if that forces people back into the market, then that would be a really, really big deal. I don't know if the nature of the change, I'm flying out to the Midwest less often doing more Zoom calls, <laughs> but short of that, I think the conversations otherwise they're directionally similar. Excellent. And then just last question, just as your role evolves and as you got a very curious mind, what are some of the things that you're in the process of working on, things that you might be able to share that reflect curiosities of yours in terms of trying to understand markets or risk better? Are there projects that are kind of a work in progress that you're excited about and looking forward to making progress on? As we talked about at the very beginning, or as, as the way you introduced me, was I'm the head of strategy and quantitative research. And all the conversation that we're having now is me with my strategy hat on. But I'm probably more excited about the work that we're doing on the quant side. And the problem with saying that you head of quant research is it means a million different things. So what is it that we're doing? In the past, our work focused on factor research. So if the yield curve is steep or inverted, what are the best kind of stocks to buy? Or how do you make money in a flat market as a growth investor? And is that different than the way that you would as a value investor? It's those kind of conversations, but very methodically thought through. The natural question that we were getting from clients was, this is great, but what does it mean for my portfolio? How do I implement this. And we've started doing more and more work where we are creating universes of managers and saying, okay, here's how this factor works in this environment. And you are one unit above or below your peers in making a bet on the direction of the economy or inflation or credit or what have you, and helping them think through, because very often they know the bet they're taking, but they have no idea whether that puts them as a big outlier versus their peers or not. And that's been a really fruitful thing. And we've signed up several hundred clients since September to have us do customized analysis of their portfolios. And it's been a really neat exercise. So rather than talking about the economy and markets and the things that we're having conversations about today, the conversations are, okay, I have my portfolio. Where am I placing my bets? Where am I taking my risks? How does that compare to other people making similar bets? Am I non-consensus in my calls? By centering the conversation on the client portfolio rather than the markets, it's a much cooler conversation. It's much more fun for me. And I think it's much more useful for the client. And that's really where our whole focus is shifting. Oh, that's really interesting work. Very, very interesting. And I think it's all about customization. We certainly live in a world of crowdedness on the publishing side. So in getting it to be a customized, bespoke approach, I think that is a pretty effective way of gaining traction and keeping traction. That's really well done. It's very interesting. Well, Jonathan, it's been a real pleasure. I really thank you for your time today. It's been great to have you as a guest on the podcast, and I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy this one. So thanks again. Thanks, Dean. I appreciate it. You've been listening to The Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. 
as we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Thank you.